Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 8, A Night to Remember. It's one of Mad Men's most iconic images. Dawn sits in the break room, lit by the dim glow of a small lamp, Heineken in hand, as we pull away into the dark loneliness of the empty office. It's a payoff Mad Men has raced towards since its first episode, with its own idyllic final shot of Dawn, at home with his family. But how did we get here? And how does A Night to Remember bring us to such an emotional conclusion? I think good storytelling relies on characters making consequential choices. And at this point in Season 2, it's fair to ask, what were the real consequences of Season 1? Kennedy won the election, Don was outed as a deserter, and Betty finally acknowledged Don's dishonesty. We might have expected some impactful changes in the 15 months that followed. But in Season 2, Mad Men seemingly picked up where things left off. The biggest changes? Betty has a new social circle at the stables, Don's a partner at the agency, and their marriage seems as strained as ever. You by now know that Mad Men doesn't deliver its story with the cinematically paced setup and payoff we expect from other series. It's a show notorious for its slower burn, where consequences don't always arrive immediately, if at all. Mad Men lets its tension linger, building resentment and delivering conflict as life often delivers it, in those inopportune, everyday moments. Since season one's finale, we've waited and wondered, when will Betty finally have her moment? In a night to remember, Mad Men finally makes good on a promise eight episodes in waiting. Our last episode ended with Betty's abrupt, visceral reaction to Don and Bobby's affair. It's a moment Mad Men has teased since Bobby arrived. Her brand of self-destructive chaos was exactly the excitement Don was seeking to feel less repressed, bolder, more like himself. And through all of it, Don emerged more powerful, his white tuxedo and his Newport blue Cadillac symbols of wealth. In fact, throughout our first few seasons, Don's personal turmoil is matched only by his growing status, so much so that you might suspect Matthew Weiner of making a statement about the cost of success. But is Don's neglectfulness a cost of business, or is it more personal? As Betty alludes, does Don even love her anymore? A Night to Remember, for me, is the defining moment in Don and Betty's relationship, but it's less abrupt, less immediate than our last episode's closing image, where we expect a reaction, A Night to Remember is more of a confirmation of resentment built throughout the series. It's an episode about the burdens we carry, about how repressed feelings can strike suddenly, and how some words can't remain unsaid. A Night to Remember arose as a title after a search for popular prom themes. Robin Faith and Matthew Weiner wrote the episode, earning a screenplay nomination at the 2009 Primetime Emmys. Leslie Linka-Gladder, previously credited for 5G and The Benefactor, returned to direct. Cinematographer Chris Manley shot the episode, It reprises several minor characters, Colin Hanks as Father Gill, Talia Balsam as Mona Sterling, and Matt McKenzie as Crap Coulson. There's also a newcomer, actor Sam Page, cast as Joan's fiancé, Greg Harris. But A Night to Remember is less about newcomers than about checking the temperature of Mad Men's central characters. It's season two's Dark Night of the Soul, and it sets us toward the season's tortured, turbulent conclusion. We open to a close-up on Betty's determined face, her thoughts seemingly racing with the rapid patter of her horse's feet on the track. We fade into another shot of Betty as she dismounts, 
panting and sweaty, exhausted. She embraces the horse, stroking its mane, searching for comfort. Betty returns home that morning and moves to her bedroom. She removes her riding gear, cuff, cuff, and collar, and watches Don's reflection in the bedroom mirror. Don stirs in bed, smiling, satisfied. The focus racks between them as they discuss the episode's central event, a dinner party Don's planning for work. Betty asks Don to fix an electrical outlet. Don tells her not to worry about it. More meaningful is the subtext. Betty's searching for a way to confront Don, but Don continues to ignore her. He shows as little concern for electrical outlets as he does for Jimmy's accusations. Across New York City, Peggy stops home to visit her mother. Anita answers and the sisters sit down to chat. You'll notice the sofa, now covered with a plastic slip, a hint Gary's now sleeping on the couch. Father Gill knocks on the door with an in-home communion kit, ready to deliver some of the sacrament. When Anita leaps to fetch her husband, Gill mentions that Peggy has been less involved at church. He asks for Peggy's help printing flyers for an upcoming dance. Peggy hesitates, but Gill insists. It's a push-pull we've seen throughout season two. Gill's still searching for a way to bring Peggy to salvation, but the church community only reminds Peggy of a past she's not ready to confront. Harry walks into Duck Phillips's office the following Monday. Duck admonishes him for an oversight. A commercial for Maytag's new washing machine, The Agitator, aired during the ABC Sunday movie about a communist agitator. It's another comic scene where Mad Men subverts Harry's perceived status, as Duck insists to Harry, get your department in order, or I'll gut it. It certainly wouldn't take much. Harry's on his own, and the department's only existed for about five episodes. Remember that selling advertising is really about selling media, and by the early 60s, TV had become the essential media battleground. Jobs in TV were prestigious. Many ad execs saw advertising media as a pathway to jobs at major television networks. The ad world was full of exposure to TV executives, Hollywood celebrities, and influential producers. But Harry's unknowingly stumbled into this job. He has no real expertise, and he's a new father with no time to read scripts. Later, when Harry laments his situation, Ken suggests tossing the work to subordinates. You need someone to lay down on the barbed wire so you can run over them, he says. It's an old military joke. Harry's not amused. And now we reach the point where I get to talk about Heineken. Product placement seems like the ultimate irony for a show dedicated to tearing down advertising and consumerism. But after season one, Heineken approached the Mad Men creative team with a pitch. Put our beer into one of your stories and we'll make it worth your while. And so season two got a Heineken-sponsored rap party, audiences saw the season finale with limited commercial interruption, and Don Draper got his marriage torpedoed by imported beer. Duck and Pete entered Don's office that morning to discuss a new strategy for Heineken. Appealing to suburban housewives who view the beer not as foreign, but as continental and sophisticated. Housewives are fascinated by imported products and faraway places, Don argues. So they devise a case study, targeted displays in suburban grocery stores. We should note that in the early 60s, some localities still outlaw the sale of beer at grocery stores. It's also debatable how committed Heineken, a company with a tiny share of the U.S. beer market, was to advertising at the time. But Mad Men gets one thing right. Heineken was the leader in imported beer in the early 60s, when imported products were beginning to invade U.S. markets. I say beginning, because growth in imports really took off in the late 60s. But many foreign brands, like Toyota, Honda, and yes, Heineken, were selling in the U.S. by 1962. Heineken wasn't just selling, though. They were keen to experiment. In the 1960s, Heineken introduced its World Bottle, 
a stackable beer bottle designed by architect John Haberkin in the shape of a brick. Heineken wanted to put empty beer bottles to use as a building material. They produced a test run of 100,000 world bottles and even used them to build a tiny home. But the idea stalled as consumers rejected the rectangular bottles. Perhaps they weren't ready, or perhaps Heineken was ahead of its time. Duck apologizes on his way out. He won't be attending Don's dinner party. Don doesn't seem to mind. Roger thought it was important we sit down with Crab Colson, he says. Pete lingers awkwardly, waiting for his invitation. Don throws up his hands. Apparently he doesn't know what to do with Pete either. At home, Betty preps for the upcoming party. While cleaning the dining room, she finds a wobbly chair. She shakes the chair several times, then, in a fit of restrained frustration, smashes it to pieces against the floor. Sally and Bobby look on curiously. Betty carries away the chair's splintered remains. This scene is one of January Jones' favorites from season two. The Mad Men crew built the chair out of balsa wood to ensure it would break on set. It's another example of Mad Men's layers of meaning, the chair a physical symbol of Don's neglect, and Betty's outburst seems like a final, frustrated release. Her emotions leak out with each soft swing and the chair splinters against her dining room floor. It's a character-defining moment in which Betty's anger finally breaks through her icy, almost glacial exterior. Roger steps into Harry's office that afternoon with more questions about Sterling Cooper's new television department. Harry begs for help, another employee to read scripts. I'm more of the face of the department, Harry insists. How do I know you're not just gold-bricking, Roger suspects. After another allusion to the mysterious Mitch in media, Harry thinks Mitch is jealous. Roger gives Harry a mandate. Find a way to get the work done. Peggy, meanwhile, continues to share her office with the Xerox machine. When Father Gill calls, we get a hilarious moment of Peggy impersonating her own secretary. Gill introduces a problem. The women at church are nervous about the phrase, a night to remember. Peggy insists it's harmless, even romantic, evoking the type of hand-holding that leads to marriage. Gill suggests she stop by the church to discuss things with the committee. It's a beautifully lit scene, a great example of how color and lighting can influence our perception of character. Peggy seems innocent, lit brightly, surrounded by colorful blues, while Father Gill smokes a cigarette obscured in darkness, lit only by a slant of light flooding through the church window. In watching season two of Mad Men, I often find Father Gill's character awkward, and then I remember that this is intentional. All the respect he's granted by his parishioners is undermined by this feeling that he's still a young man, not quite sure of himself. And though it's clear Peggy respects him, Mad Men does its best to build parallels between these characters. A Night to Remember cast Peggy and Gill as a two-person ad team, with Peggy as the creative and Gill managing the committee's expectations. It's a compelling way to tie Peggy's growing assuredness at work with the sin she's yet to confront. Father Gill, meanwhile, ventures into an unfamiliar situation where he's not really welcome. But I think it shows Gill's single-mindedness. He's out for Peggy's salvation, and he's willing to meet her where she stands. The last of a night to remember's couples is one you'd hardly expect. Joan enters Harry's office that afternoon to offer some help. Harry explains the problem. We just want to nip any problems in the bud. You know, for example, if a kid's pushing away his dinner in disgust, just make sure it's not Gordon's fish sticks. You know, if people can't be coughing and dying right before a lucky ad. Things like that. It's common sense, really. It sounds interesting. It is, uh, for the first few. Warren McKenna interrupts, complimenting Joan on how great she looks. Joan brushes him off and promises to find Harry some help. She takes the scripts in hand, all authentic. We had a lot of old scripts for research, Matthew Weiner stated. Harry warns Joan about Maytag's sensitivity to communism. She leaves, 
and war laments his timidness. Why can't I do that? Because you already have a job. No, I mean talk to her like that. She's so much woman. As night falls, a party begins at the Draper household. Betty and Carla prepare the dining room while Sally shows off her ballet for a crowd of guests. Roger and his wife Mona, Crab, and Petra Colson. Don smiles proudly. Each guest expresses a fitting sentiment. Cherish your kid's youth. There's some irony here given how adult Sally's become throughout season two. Betty returns and orders the kids to bed. As they say their goodnights, the doorbell rings, and Duck enters with flowers. He bids the kids goodnight and apologizes for showing up stag. No one cares, Don says. My wife hated odd numbers, Duck replies. Whatever bad blood existed between them seems to be forgotten. When Duck moves to the living room, Roger makes some introductions. Well, hello there. Duck Phillips, you know Mona. Of course. Hello. Of course, this is Petra and Crab Colson. Crab Duck. Duck Crab. Duck sips a tomato juice while the group discusses the New England countryside and first-class problems like should we or shouldn't we get a boat. Crab asks if Don and Betty are joining the country club, but before Don can answer, Betty returns and calls everyone into the dining room. Petra stumbles into the doorframe. Duck works on Crab. He does everything you need him to do, Roger remarks. The crowd gathers in the dining room for dinner. Betty stands at one end of the table, her shiny white dress spotted with polka dots of blue, yellow, and green. Don stands at the opposite end, smiling, satisfied. I want to note a few things about the staging that I think contribute to the perception of this scene. First, the distance between Don and Betty further isolates them. They stare at each other from across the long table while the other couples sit together. Second, you'll notice the anticipation Madman builds by having everyone stand. Part of this is period authenticity. This is a business dinner. It's formal, planned. But the staging is also a way of communicating through cinematic language. It builds an expectation. As Betty recites the menu, we assume everyone will take their seats. We're going to take a little trip around the world, starting in Spain with gazpacho, followed by Japan, rumaki, and then we'll stop by Dutchess County for a leg of lamb. Mint jelly, accompanied by egg noodles, the way my grandmother made them from Germany. And we have a choice of burgundy from France, or a frosted glass of beer from Holland. But the tension isn't resolved the way we'd expect. Duck points to an ice bucket full of Heineken. Did you bring a case from work? No. Oh, please, Draper, you'll do anything to win an argument. I don't understand. You went out and bought that. At the store. Carla did some of the marketing, but no, I did. Why? Betty seems confused and taken off guard. But Roger and Duck explain. Heineken is one of our clients. He said you were the market, and you are. Oh, that is funny. Incredible. What an interesting experiment. <laughs> Betty pours out wine and returns to her lone, mismatched replacement chair, left to wonder, is anything about Don authentic, or is it all wrapped up in some sales pitch? Roger lifts his glass for a toast, to the Drapers and their idyllic country home. Meanwhile, Peggy meets with the ladies of the CYO committee. The costumes here border on outrageous. The older women dressed in older styles, with extravagant hats, while Peggy wears a more modest green dress. They're concerned about the flyer. Why is the couple dancing so close? Leave some room for the Holy Ghost, they suggest. And how will the boys find out about the dance if they only send flyers to the girls, they wonder. Peggy has some well-reasoned answers, 
but this is the classic advertising client, one that isn't sure what they don't like, but is convinced something's not right. Peggy seems annoyed. You asked for my help, she tells Father Gill. He apologizes and promises to support her. Our next scene introduces Joan's recast fiancé, Greg Harris. You'll recall that Mad Men cast a different actor for a brief scene in For Those Who Think Young. Joan lounges on the sofa when Greg comes home with takeout. She's been reading scripts for As the World Turns and asks if someone could emerge from a coma with an accent. People don't really come out of comas, Greg replies. The conversation shifts abruptly to a different issue. Greg wants Joan to stay home, but he's still finishing his medical training. For now, the young couple has no money. Joan insists she likes to work. She seems enthralled with the television scripts Harry gave her to read. Greg reluctantly approves, for now. Mad Men's clearly building Greg into a superficially perfect man. He's a future doctor, attractive, and seemingly kind. But Greg seems to have more traditional ideas about work and marriage. He's not a doctor yet, though. That life in the country that Joan longs for? It's still just a promise. And I think that Greg reveals a hint of insecurity when he presses Joan about working too hard. I don't think the costuming is any coincidence, then. This is the first time Mad Men shows Joan wearing pants and it only adds to the scene's undercurrent of emasculation. Back at the Drapers, Don sits on the sofa watching an episode of Wagon Train while Betty and Carla clean up in the kitchen. Betty thanks Carla and tells her to go home for the night. The party was a great success, Carla comments. She bids Don goodbye and exits. As soon as the door swings closed, Betty marches into the living room, turns off the TV, and stands defiant in front of Don. You embarrassed me. What are you talking about? You embarrassed me. What did I do? Matthew Weiner explained this moment in an interview with AMC TV. There's a time to speak your mind, and sometimes in that moment you don't know how to say what you need to say, so it comes out of nowhere. January Jones has added her own perspective, emphasizing that Betty's repeated line, you embarrassed me, is about more than the dinner party. It's the way she feels about Don's affair with Bobby, about having it thrown in her face by Jimmy Barrett. Don tries to dismiss Betty's concerns. I use our lives in my work all the time, he says. But Betty finally presses further. I know about you and that woman. What? Damn it, Don, I know you're having an affair. You and Bobby Barrett. What? How could you? She's so old. Don denies everything, challenging Betty to confront him. Jimmy told me everything, she says. She presses Don to admit the affair, but Don refuses. You think I would sleep with that woman? You can't help yourself. Admit it. There's nothing to admit. You're lying. I'm going to bed. Now I've built some hype around this moment. And I think the scene is incredibly well done, so I want to call out several details, because the lighting, the blocking of the actors, and the shot sizes are all intentional details that contribute to the meaning of the scene. We begin as Betty brings the argument to Don, who rests on the sofa. These shots are most often lit pretty brightly, as Betty finally brings her feelings into the open. Don moves away throughout the conversation, first standing, then walking past Betty and into the kitchen. Betty follows, persistently. The movement communicates each character's intentions. Don is evasive, and Betty hunts after him, trying to pin him down. But note the moment when Don dares Betty to speak her mind. What do you know? he asks, 
Finally halting and stepping in closer, the light split across his face, half in silhouette. Split lighting often conveys power and assertiveness, and, combined with the movement and the pull-in to a closer shot, the lighting helps shift Don's tone from evasive to confrontational. It also lends an ominousness to Don's repeated denials. Of course, we've seen Madman light Don this way throughout the series, but in this scene, we sense that Betty finally sees Don the way we see him. The accusation is obvious. You're a bad man. Remember the hobo's mark back in season one? Don rejected his father and fashioned an entire life around running from the past. But in A Night to Remember, Betty finally confronts Don's hypocrisy. Late into the night, Don lays sleepless, staring at the empty half of the bed. Betty opens the door and stands in the doorway, then closes it and walks away. She crawls into Sally's bed, still wearing the polka dot dress. We dissolve into a shot of Betty, sitting at the draper's kitchen table the following morning. Her hair is a mess, her makeup is undone, and she still wears the polka dot dress. She smokes a cigarette while Sally eats breakfast. Don enters, dressed for work, and Sally shouts to him. Don kisses his daughter goodbye. Betty stews silently. We move to the office lobby, where the new team of Joan and Harry meet with two executives from Maytag. The executives seem pleased. They're shocked to learn that Joan is the liaison they've been speaking with over the phone. I'll again draw attention to the costumes. Joan wears a blue and gold dress, and Harry dons a matching blue shirt with a gold bow tie. These are the colors of optimism and harmony, and everything about this partnership seems to be working. We return to the Draper's home, where Betty searches her bedroom closet, a set built specifically for this scene by production designer Dan Bishop. The pace of the music and the editing slowly intensifies as Betty rifles through Don's clothes, searching for anything to confirm her suspicions. But all she finds is a silver dollar in one of Don's pockets. She moves to Don's office and opens a drawer full of ad slogans, scribbled on napkins and pieces of paper. Among them is Don's, what do women want, question, from the right guard pitch. The handwriting is Robin Vaith's. Betty jerks at Don's locked drawer full of secrets, but she can't open it. She gives up and walks away. The dinner party continues to haunt Don at the office. Two men from Heineken arrive to discuss Sterling Cooper's new strategy. Pete discusses the research. More people are moving to the suburbs. More people are commuting. And as a result, more people are drinking at home. He explains the agency's case study, but the clients are only swayed after Duck recounts Don's party. Sounds like you know your wife, one client jokes. Duck continues that Betty is the exact type of woman Heineken is after. Wealthy, sophisticated, the perfect wife. Don seems contemplative throughout the meeting, but the Heineken execs eventually agree. Let's see how some strangers' wives feel. Harry and Joan entertain a second set of clients that afternoon. An executive from Sea and Ski, makers of those iconic dollar green suntan lotion bottles, arrives to discuss commercial placement. Harry recommends Love of Life, a soap opera that aired until 1980, but Joan interjects with a different idea. As the world turns is about to become unmissable, she says, the series is about to receive extra promotion from the networks. Harry agrees it's a good idea, and the client leaves happy. I think you'll be pleased. That's why I didn't want to do this on the phone. I love what she says, and I love the way she says it. Uh, Joe, this is Betty, meanwhile, lays passed out in bed. Don's shirt scattered around her. Her hair is still a mess, and she still wears the polka dot dress. Are you okay, Mommy? Sally whispers to her. Betty sends her away, then gets up and steps on a wine glass she's dropped on the floor. It's a symbolic gesture. Wine glasses are often broken at Jewish weddings. The tradition has several suggested meanings. Traditionalists say breaking the glass symbolizes the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
but the gesture has other connotations. It's a completion of the marital covenant and a warning in times of celebration that suffering and loss are also parts of the human experience. But to me, what this moment represents is that point of no return in Don and Betty's marriage, which now seems irrevocably broken. Harry enters Roger's office at half past four. Roger stands at his desk, packing his briefcase to leave for the day. The interplay between these characters always feels comedic, and this scene is no exception. Roger mentions that clients are impressed with Harry's work. He suggests hiring a full-time employee so that Joan can return to her regular duties. Harry excitedly agrees. As they walk out, Roger pauses to let Harry open the door. I'm still the boss, he implies. Don finds the lights out and the kids asleep when he arrives home that evening. He moves to the bedroom and stands in the doorway, shrouded in darkness. Betty kneels on the bed, her polka dot dress spread around her. I would never do this to you, she says, her face illuminated by broad light that makes her feel open and authentic. Don continues to insist nothing happened. As the scene ends, we get this stylish, wide, high-angle shot that shows Betty on the bed and Don walking through the hallway. Night falls and Don sleeps on the couch, dressed in his boxers and a white t-shirt. Betty enters, her makeup removed and her hair wet from the shower. Note the colors and the lighting here. Everything is desaturated in the moonlight, clean and white. It's natural and honest, and in that context, Betty finally says something she's been holding on to. You never look me in the eye. You never say you love me. Do you hate me? She accuses. I love you, and I love the children. I don't want to lose all of this, Don reassures. John Hamm has explained this scene, suggesting that Don desperately wants to make his marriage work, but he's genuinely unsure if he still loves Betty. But in his repeated denials, Don no longer seems strong. He's scared and pathetic. We track Peggy and Father Gill through the office the following day. Gill marvels at the rhythmic clicking of keys and the steady hum of conversation. Ken and Pete watch from afar and crack a few jokes, including, did we get Miracle Whip? And, it makes sense, she's an undercover nun. Joan steps into Harry's office and finds Harry chatting with Danny Lindstrom, Sterling Cooper's new head of broadcast operations. That's right, Harry's taken all of Joan's good work and turned it into a job for one of his buddies. When Harry asks Joan to help Danny with the details, Joan struggles to keep her composure. She promises she'll be around if they have any questions. Harry seems satisfied. Note, this is Danny's only appearance in the Mad Men series. Across the office, Peggy runs the Xerox, making copies of the dance flyer. Gil finally speaks his mind. He asks why Peggy doesn't take communion. You don't have to live life like the rest of us, Peggy states. Gil wonders why she's been pushing everyone away. He presses Peggy to confess what she's been hiding. There is no sin too great to bring to God. You can reconcile yourself with him and have a whole new start. You're a smart, beautiful young girl. You have so much to offer. Do you feel you don't deserve his love? But Peggy politely denies him, returns to the Xerox, collects the stack of printed flyers, and sends Gil on his way. The scene ends with a shot of Peggy framed by the open office door, alone. She breathes an exhausted sigh of relief. Betty looks like her old self again as she moves about her kitchen that afternoon. She checks the oven, then sits on the couch with Bobby and Sally, watching the Danny Thomas show, which was quite ironically titled Make Room for Daddy before 1956. The dinner party, Don's lies and infidelity, and that awful polka dot dress all seem forgotten. But the show breaks into Jimmy's commercial for Utz potato chips. 
Betty moves to her kitchen and calls Don at his office. Don takes the call and finally takes what's coming. I don't care where you go, I just don't want you here, Betty instructs. Don hangs up and looks around his office contemplatively. A final montage muses over several characters. Joan looks over herself in the mirror, then moves to the bed, rubbing a red mark on her shoulder left by her bra strap. Peggy sits alone in the bathtub, and Father Gill removes his vestments, cuff, cuff, then collar, in a sequence that mirrors Betty's opening scene. He unpacks a guitar and sits on the bed. The camera draws slowly into his room as he begins to play. Well, early in the morning, about the break of day, I ask the Lord, help me find the way, help me find the way to the promised land. Gill's rendition of the song Early in the Morning, a B-side to the 1962 Peter, Paul, and Mary single, Lemon Tree, feels like an expression of loneliness, with melancholic vocals accompanied by a stripped-back, almost vacant acoustic guitar. We're finally seeing John Gill as a man, and we sense that Peggy's You Don't Have to Live Life missed the mark. Gill's obviously bothered by Peggy's repeated rejections. He feels alone, and he longs for answers. It's a fitting conclusion to an episode that leaves so many characters searching, and it carries us to that memorable final shot. Don grabs a Heineken from the fridge, pops the cap, and pulls up a chair. In reviewing Mad Men, I constantly ask myself, what do I feel when I watch this? And if we judge stories this way, then A Night to Remember succeeds where previous episodes fell flat. Because when I watch this episode, I feel that single, unified feeling of loneliness. Few moments distract from the somber, emotional tone. Our characters feel isolated. That much jumps off the screen. The episode, of course, gives us several well-written scenes. Notable for me is the dinner party, which inserts Duck and prompts us to ask, will he or won't he have a drink, before it pulls the rug out from under Betty's feet. There are several great lines, crab, duck, and did we get Miracle Whip? Shoehorning Peggy and Gil into an advertising project was a clever way to give Peggy more status in their relationship. But it's not just the writing. All the film elements seem to be working here. Throughout the episode, I was struck by how lighting built a mood, from the shadows on Don's face to the way the moonlight strikes Betty, all the way through the final montage. The actor's movement felt intentional. The camera work was restrained, not indulging too heavily in the episode's emotional moments, making them feel more natural. And who could forget Betty's dress, or Harry and Joan's matching wardrobe? Who could forget those old ladies and their ridiculous hats? In my introduction, I mentioned that this is a story about the weights that we carry, and A Night to Remember draws us into the past with references both direct and indirect. Gil removing his vestments is a reprisal of Betty's opening bedroom scene. Don's arrival at home mirrors the final sequence from the wheel, and the closing montage seems like a somber, re-envisioned version of the shots that opened season two. Old stories are dug up. Don's right guard idea from Ladies' Room, Jimmy's Utz commercial, Peggy's Baby. For every step a night to remember takes forward, it takes a look back. The end result? All those unsettled wrongs come into focus, and we feel the character's overwhelming frustration. There are three stories to discuss here, each with its own character-defining moments. First is the partnership between Joan and Harry. Harry's grown increasingly self-serving since he discovered how much the other execs are paid. But Harry doesn't want to do the work, and even if he did, he seems borderline incompetent. Enter Roger, who initially tells Harry to find a way, before offering Joan's help. And while Joan shows talent, the Edwards still doesn't take women seriously. 
Harry takes credit, Roger falls for it, and Joan's left to wonder about her real value. There's a line in Joan's conversation with Greg that really sums up Joan's place at the office. I thought you just walked around with people staring at you, Greg says. And isn't that Joan's problem? She's powerful, diligent, capable. But men only seem interested in her beauty, not her work. That's unfortunate, because as Joan effuses about television scripts, we sense she really likes this job. Harry, meanwhile, is just using it as a stepping stone. Despite all that, these two seem to genuinely work well together. But neither Harry nor anyone else really takes Joan seriously. And by the episode's end, she's stepped over. It's a counterpoint to Mad Men's embrace your sexuality idea from the new girl. The original script included some stage directions that showed Harry's frustration with Joan speaking out of turn, but I think it's good that they cut this idea, because I think Harry's frustration could have easily been taken as jealousy, and I don't think Harry even takes Joan seriously enough to be jealous. He's glad for her help, but he's either too egotistical or too incompetent to know when things are good. I find this episode really fleshes out Joan's character through her relationship with Greg. He wants her to stay home, but she's supporting them both, and we sense that despite all her comments about getting married and moving to the country, Joan likes to work. Work gives her purpose, a way to define herself that's unrelated to physical beauty. Much like Bobby or Peggy, Joan wants to be seen for more than her looks, but it's still 1962, and the world isn't quite ready for that. Our second story covers the unresolved tension between Peggy and Father Gill. But does A Night to Remember reveal anything new about this relationship? I think more than Peggy, this episode brings us closer to John Gill. He seems genuinely concerned for Peggy's soul, and he goes as far as stepping into a Madison Avenue advertising agency to salvage her. But Peggy continues to deny him. I don't think she distrusts Gill. More likely, she feels uncomfortable with the church's dogmatism. God is more than what we were raised on, Gill says giving voice to the sentiments of Vatican II. But by the episode's close, Gil's defeated voice has only to cry out for help. I find the final shot of Peggy especially powerful. She's obviously troubled, still sorting through several pressures. The idea of confession, the moral decision to give away her baby, and her own resentment. This all clearly weighs on her as she lays in the bathtub, trying to wash herself clean. Peggy's character is often overly tolerant of the injustices of others. We saw this in The New Girl, when Bobby told her to stop acting like a little girl and stand up to Don. And amidst this episode where repressed feelings finally emerge, it seems like Peggy's only way forward is to confront her own feelings directly. What then about Betty Draper? There's not much left to cover, because we've detailed the problems in her relationship. We've analyzed her childishness, her repressed emotions, and her inability to confront Don. That was all part of the setup. A Night to Remember is her defining moment. It presents her character growth as a choice to finally stand up for herself and voice nearly two seasons worth of frustration. Her descent from perfect hostess to disheveled mess helps make a night to remember unforgettable. She wanders through repressed thoughts, through deep depression, and emerges with a clear voice. Don't come home, Don. It's Betty's most convincing moment yet. And what about Don? We see the worst parts of him in a night to remember. But are his sentiments, I love you, and I love the children. Honest? Several members of the crew joke that even they believe Don. But should we believe him? Five episodes remain in season two, and throughout these episodes, Don will search his soul for the answers. He'll travel across space and time to arrive at a final conclusion, but he'll never truly recover from what happens in A Night to Remember. Recall the glass. This episode is a point of no return. 
Don's not coming home anytime soon. And in our next episode, he'll check into a hotel as another character deals with his own trouble and takes his leave six months to get dry and straighten himself out.